Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us. If you're not doing so already, it makes a huge difference indeed. Today we are talking about philanthropy, particularly philanthropy within a UK context and looking at uh, you know what's holding us back from greater philanthropy. As our regular listeners know, philanthropy is a key thing about the Do One Better podcast, and it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Kath Dovey, who is the co-founder of the Beacon Collaborative. Many people listening to the show will know the Beacon Collaborative because they're trying to get people to be more philanthropic as well. And I've had the pleasure of knowing Kath for a few years. And uh, without further ado, Kath, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. How lovely to see you, Alberto. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about the Beacon Collaborative? What's it all about? Absolutely. We've been going for about five years now. And as the name suggests, we work collaboratively. So what we try to do is work with all of the organizations in the UK that touch philanthropy to try and work with them to build an ecosystem for philanthropy, to try and get philanthropy on the radar, to try and promote and celebrate the great work that philanthropists do, because we want to have a conversation about this. And we hope to make that conversation national, and we hope to encourage more giving through those activities. Excellent. And what's the state of affairs? Because I do believe you are not not entirely satisfied with the current state of philanthropy in the UK. Well, the UK is an incredibly generous nation. Um, You know, we always rank highly on indices for generosity. Lots of people get involved in fundraising. Lots of people give money in the UK. In fact, I would go to say, as far as to say, almost everybody in the UK gives something. What we are not so good at is moving people from that state of generosity into the thoughtful giving that sees the bigger donations come through, that sees the support for organizations, you know, whether that's through unrestricted funding or whether that's through, you know, supporting them with with other things such as, you know, knowledge and networks and contacts and, you know, helping organizations to thrive, not just to, you know, to have to move from campaign to campaign to campaign to keep going. So that's the journey that we are trying to encourage the UK to think about uh, and to move people who give, who have resources that they can use for the public goods, to move them along that journey to be much more engaged. Mm. And the high net worth uh, donor segment or even ultra high net worth donor segment, how do they compare to the general population in terms of what percentage of their assets or their income they might be uh, uh, giving on any given year for uh, philanthropic purposes? That's a brilliant question because it really kind of puts puts your finger on exactly the issue. So if we look at the high net worth population in the UK, there's about over 500,000 of them. It goes up and down depending on asset values, but we've got about half a million millionaires in the UK. And our research would suggest that between 10 and 20% of them give generously. So that's those bigger gifts, you know, those gifts of 10,000 or 20,000 or even 10 million. Um, but it's only a relatively small proportion of the total high net worth population. What we actually see is around half of them give at the levels that you would associate with the wider population, the few hundred pounds a year or the low thousand pounds a year. And because we have very low donations at one end of that spectrum and incredible generosity at the other end of the spectrum, it's really hard to talk about what a, a normal gift is. 
So we tend to talk in terms of um, thresholds for generosity. So at each wealth level, there is a minority group that gives at a high level. And we look at that proportion uh, as a percentage of assets. And we say, well, you should be giving somewhere between one and two percent, depending on how rich you are. Mm. So there's room for improvement. Definite room for improvement. What's, um, what would you say holds individuals back from giving more? Well, the most interesting thing there is quite a lot of the barriers to giving are personal and, and psychological. And we know this because we've done research in the UK, but if you compare that with studies that are done internationally, the same factors come up. So, you know, there's a there's something in the human psyche that makes it quite hard to give large chunks of money away. And I suppose if we think about that rationally, that shouldn't be a surprise. Um, just because someone has a large bank balance doesn't mean that those psychological barriers change. Um, all they've got is a larger bank balance. So it's perfectly normal when people are thinking about giving that bigger gift to start having questions about whether it's the right thing to do, whether it's the right organisation, are they going to be judged for it? What are their family going to think? How do they get involved? Who do they go to? Who do they talk to? You know, there's a real sense of, of fear that, um, you know, this might be, you know, might be an unusual thing to do. Um, and of course, you know, even wealthy people may also worry about their retirement. Have they got enough for their retirement? Have they got enough to look after their children? Have they got enough to look after their parents? Um, you know, how how can they manage those resources for the whole of their lifetime? So it's it's quite hard to overcome some of these barriers and start thinking about making those bigger gifts. Yeah. So I say, you know, there are always you know, barriers of fear. And we just have to recognize that that's part of the human experience. And if we can help to encourage individuals to, to address those and support them and, you know, start to build those relationships of trust, then we may be able to move people from a £200 gift to a £500 gift, to a £1,000 gift, to a £2,000 gift, and just see this as a, a learning experience um, for donors. These um, barriers of fear and uh, from your from your experience, what you've observed, how do they relate to the life cycle, like the stage that somebody is in at any given time in their careers, in their lives, whether they're in their um, early 30s and embarking on a, on a career that could be very financially, very fruitful down the line, but still finding their way initially in that philanthropic journey uh, versus individuals who've been around for quite a while where they are already thinking of retirement not as an abstract notion but you know it's tangible and it's right in front of them yeah. um and they might be looking at the their assets differently how are these things manifesting themselves for different people at different stages there's absolutely no doubt that we procrastinate when it comes to giving um so younger people are even busier than older people in many ways you know they have a career that they're trying to get um, started or a business that they're trying to get started. They may be working crazy hours. Um, they've probably got young families. They've got other priorities. They've got a longer uh, lifetime that they need to manage their resources over. So there's definitely a sense that younger people who are on their wealth creation journey say this is something that they want to think about later. And I think in part, the word philanthropy can be quite scary. It sounds like something that, you know, you have to have a real expertise in and that you dedicate time to and that you, you know, you join this kind of quite exclusive club of people who spend a lot of time giving money away. 
um, that that word itself can be quite frightening. What we see is, of course, um, you know, when there are moments in people's lives that make them stop and think about the world around them or about their place in the world around them, that they that, that philanthropy comes onto the radar. So when they have children, for example, and the world that those children are going to grow up in, it brings to mind some of the challenges when they sell their business and their circumstances change and they have more resources. It brings to mind what, what do they want to do now in the world? So there are moments in a life cycle when people will think, actually, could I do more? And what we really need to do is to, to be alongside them at those moments and to help them make sensible choices that will give them confidence as donors to take the next step and then the next step and then the next step. But you're right, there is definitely certain um, life stage and life cycle issues at play when it comes to giving. You touched on family earlier. Um, I imagine the role of the spouse, the role of the children or grandchildren, obviously the, the, the intergenerational component, uh, that has to be uh, something that uh, that plays a role. Absolutely. Yes, spot on. I mean, families are complicated, right? doesn't matter whether you are an average income earner or a super income earner. Families are complicated. And if you are the wealth creator, you have responsibilities to your immediate family and your wider family. Um, you know, you, you will be debating relation, uh, your relationship with money with your spouse. You'll be trying to bring your kids up the right way. You know, does that mean more philanthropy? Does that mean engaging them in philanthropy? There's a very, very interesting dynamic happening at the moment, particularly in very wealthy families between the older generation and the younger generation. And, you know, um, there's a lot that's talked about about millennials and the next generation of wealthy. And there's this huge wealth transfer that's about to happen. Um, and, and what we're seeing from a philanthropic perspective is that you know the younger generation has got very different priorities from the older generation they want to give in very different ways from the older generation how do you negotiate that within a family you know these are things that really have to be brought to the surface and talked about and at the moment certainly in the uk and i my impression is that this is the same certainly across europe maybe less so in america but across the uk and and, and possibly across europe you know the wealth advisory community is not well equipped to have these conversations. How do you help your clients to negotiate a values transition between two generations? And how do you then express that in the way they manage their money, the way that they put money into social entrepreneurship, the way that they put money into philanthropic causes? It's a really interesting time to be in family philanthropy. Yeah. What about um, the fundraising side of it? So obviously a lot of these um, organizations that are trying to improve the world they rely on the generosity of donors and funders. What holds fundraising organizations back from perhaps having a, a better, more fruitful engagement with uh, those high net worth donors, let's say? Well, again, I'll talk from the UK perspective, but my impression is that, again, many European countries are in a similar situation. Um, if you look at the fundraising community in the UK, there's an enormous amount of attention on fundraising inevitably through campaigns through appeals through events you know moments in time where they connect with donors and say come on this is something that that you should be giving to and covid you know through the covid pandemic we've seen an enormous amount of fabulous campaigns you know encouraging people to support uh, causes that can help in their communities that can help with some of the bigger issues and as i said right at the beginning everybody gives you know, we're all aware of these campaigns and we all give something. But what I think the fundraising community is still learning how to do is to connect with the donors who can then go on 
to become the major donors of the future or indeed even the major philanthropists you know they don't um they don't think from a campaigning mindset how do we move from a campaign to a relationship and i think that's a really big challenge when on the other side you've got donors who have these concerns about fear and trust and you know not quite certain what good giving looks like they don't get into those relationships where they can learn and where they can develop together with the organization and um, you know i use this phrase donor engagement by which i mean you know let's think about this relationship before you've met them how are you going to meet them when you meet them what are you going to tell them how do you want them to you know think about your organization and how they can work with it what do you want them to learn what do you want them to know then you know maybe if they're thinking about giving you a gift what does that what does good look like to them you know what kind of gift do they want to give do they know what kind of gift they want to give once they've done that you know they want to know how that's gone they want to keep in touch with you on it that specific gift that thing that they have given to they want to understand better because you know the whole cause the whole issue the whole territory the whole you know whatever it is is really difficult and they're one person trying to do their bit so so don't make it big make it small and then when they answer that you know over time they can kind of develop a greater understanding and hopefully a greater relationship that will mean that they want to give more and support your work you know for the long term and in and in ways that can be much more fruitful mm. so we looked a little bit about those donors and how they might uh, how much or how little they might give and how uh, what sort of barriers might be holding them back and also a little bit from the fundraising side what's happening there what about from the um the regulatory framework, the the, the UK uh, context for philanthropists and philanthropies uh, to be operating in, what's that looking like right now? What, where are sort of areas that you might think are are uh, warrant a little bit of uh, exploration and opportunity for improvement? Yeah, I mean, I actually think the biggest gap here, because you know we have to look at where the biggest challenges are, and I think certainly in the UK, the lack of government attention to philanthropy is a problem. It is a challenge. Um, and there's a very specific reason behind that because government sets the tone. So if government cares about philanthropy, then that feeds into the national conversation. That feeds into what the media is interested in. And that feeds into you know real conversations about, are we supporting philanthropy as effectively as we could through our regulatory systems, through the way that we work with, with donors, you know, with family philanthropists, with trusts and foundations. So the lack of government attention to philanthropy is a challenge. You know, we have quite a critical environment for philanthropy in the media. And I think that's because, you know, quite rightly, you know, academic institutions have looked at philanthropy and they've looked at the pros and cons. You know, economics is not a perfect system. Politics is not a perfect system. Philanthropy is not a perfect system. Any system created by human beings is going to have flaws in it. And it's quite right that those flaws are studied and they're understood so that we can develop best practices and try to overcome some of those challenges. But what it means is, again, because we don't have any government support for this activity, that inevitably the media will pick up on some of those critiques. So there are some quite challenging things that you will see in the media about the quality of philanthropy, you know, with examples of individual philanthropists often, and debate about the accountability of what they do, or whether it's focused on whimsy, or, you know, is this in some way um, an anti-democratic activity? All of these are perfectly good, legitimate conversations to have. 
But the impact of it is people who have resources, who are already underconfident, don't want to put their heads above the parapet. You know, they will go with the flow. They will give what they've always given. They don't want to get engaged in the subject of, you know, major donor giving because it comes with quite a lot of ethical and um, ethical challenges and possibly, you know, the, the potential for quite negative public um, scrutiny of what they're doing. So I think government has a role in setting the national conversation and saying, you know, this is something that we should look at seriously and this is what what you know what we think how we think it aligns with democratic priorities the next phase of that is how to make sure it's done well and again good regulation is really important you know you can't give money away without being involved certainly in ethical decisions possibly in political decisions so this is an activity that must be properly regulated now in the uk we have a pretty good framework for the regulation of philanthropy we have tax incentives that are you know really thoughtful and and um, in many ways put the the principal benefit accruing in in favor of the charity you know there is the opportunity for major donors to claim the difference but it's a proportion if they don't get the 100 percent tax relief that happens in other systems so you know there's, there's some quite thoughtful tax incentives in place in the uk we have a regulator, we have the Charity Commission, and if you're carrying out philanthropic activity, you know, through a structure, that structure is regulated, which means things like uh, ensuring that your work is in the public benefit, you know, there are actual tests for that. So you can only give to things that have been sanctioned by a democratic body that says, you know, this is in the public good. This is all well and good. But the problem is that quite a lot of the work of the Charity Commission is inevitably, rightly, completely, you know, sensibly focused on charities. We have 168,000 of them in the UK and a small regulator, which means that family foundations, family philanthropy, you know, anyone who's got a structure what they're trying to give through, you know, they're jammed into the same bucket of, of, of regulation as everybody else. And that can make some choices quite difficult for, fa for family foundations. So having a stream of regulation that just looked at this whole issue could help untangle some of those challenges and would give us a much better operating framework for this whole activity that's happening. It's happening, it's growing, we know it's growing. And at the moment, it's, it's not effectively supported in the fundraising channel. It's not effectively supported in the regulatory or, or indeed by, by government and the wider media. When you say government's a little bit absent from this specifically are there some policies that you would like to see come into fruition absolutely and i'd, I'd focus on three areas so getting support effective support to upcoming donors is really critical if you want to engage them on this journey and i you know one of the policy ideas that i think we're, we're talking about within our sector quite widely is is there a way that we can make financial advice in some way mandatory so when you go and see your wealth advisor part of the conversation is about values and how those values are expressed in philanthropy in impact investment in social entrepreneurship so there's professional financial support around around you know this whole activity that's not yet mandatory in the uk and it could be and it could be regulated and it could be you know real effective training provided for wealth advisors in that area so that's one area 
joining up government would be really helpful <laughs> you know philanthropy covers the whole of human experience and the environment you know there's nothing that philanthropy doesn't touch on it doesn't reside within a single department so being able to have a joined up conversation with government so that you know if, if we need to bring treasury in if we need to bring our department for the environment in if we need to bring our department for international trade in somebody can coordinate those conversations and then the third area would be looking at incentives. You know, as I say, we have some pretty good tax incentives in the UK for giving. It's, you know, I'm not in any way criticising our regime, perhaps slightly complicated, but if we were able to get the wealth advice right, then, you know, that issue could be cleared up. Um, but what we don't do enough of in the UK is match funding, because we know this works. Every place that match funding has been used, um, it's been effective and it has, you know, had long-term positive gains. But again, because we don't have a joined up government, we may have our environmental funders going to the Department for Environment saying, can you help us with a match fund? But that department doesn't understand philanthropy and doesn't understand what it could do. And therefore, the fund doesn't come, you know, come to fruition. Or someone else may go to a, a, the health department and say, please, can we have a, a health fund? It would really help motivate giving in this particular area. Same issue. So these things are all connected. But if we could get those three things in place, we would have a much more effective um, environment and infrastructure for giving in the UK. Mm. So you definitely have clarity of thought in terms of what you would like to see changed, what you would like to see enacted. Tell me a little bit about the work of the Beacon Collaborative in trying to get these things to happen. Well, I think the key thing is that, um, you know, if we want change from the top, we have to speak with one voice. So the collaboration is really important. You know, that we debate with our colleagues in other organisations, whether that's, you know, the Charities Aid Foundation or the UK Community Foundations or Philanthropy Impact or Big Society Capital. You know, these bodies exist and they do fabulous work in slightly different fields. So bringing them together to have this conversation about what will move the needle means that we can all start speaking with one voice. We can share resources because, you know, philanthropy organisations are not heavily resourced. Um, so, you know, we, we have limited resources, but we share resource to try and think through these challenges, try and, you know, create proposals that are very thought, thoughtful and practical. Um, and then, you know, we can work together to try and spread the word. Um, through that whole network, we can touch collectively any part of philanthropy in the UK and so that is quite a, a powerful thing to be able to do so working with other organizations is so so critical to what we do and we have fabulous you know support from them and you know a fabulous network but the other side of this is you know representing philanthropists because philanthropy is a pretty lonely activity um, you may be giving away millions but you probably are doing that you know possibly with a couple of staff if you're lucky but you may be doing that on your own it's a pretty lonely sport so enabling philanthropists to talk to each other to get some of that confidence to get some of that peer support to bring them into networks so they don't feel alone so they build that that you know that trust and and those trusted relationships and that confidence is also a really important part of our work and then the other thing we do are projects that try to stimulate different parts of the sector so for example we're working at the moment looking at is it possible to measure how much philanthropy happens in the uk you know that requires a definition of philanthropy that requires an understanding of the data sources that are out there and some really good economic thought into how you would combine them which we'll do with experts in the field who do that every day but if we knew that number then every fundraiser in the country would be able to say okay well 
I can reasonably expect to get X market share. And if I'm going to get X market share, what actions do I need in order to deliver that? So it creates a platform for other people to execute the strategies that they want to execute. So those are the three things, you know, speaking with one voice, working with philanthropists and trying to stimulate um, some of the strategic development that needs to happen in the sector. I remember attending one of your conferences, a Beacon Collaborative Conference, and perhaps it was the inaugural one, but it was right at the start or just before the pandemic. And uh, you also had a manifesto that you were encouraging people to sign. Um, how are you finding sort of traction that you're having with the philanthropic community? How has that played out over the last uh, two, three years? We have a huge amount of goodwill, I think, for the work that we're doing. And, um, you know, our communications always seem to be very well received. And of course, the network is growing. So I think I think we are going in the right direction. <laughs> um, the manifesto really was just trying to, in very simple terms, try to outline what the role of philanthropy is in society, because this, this question really does need to be understood. And so the, the more simple we can make that message, hopefully the more traction that we will gain with it. And, you know, land some of those key mes messages, you know, that this is private assets for public good. It is operating within an ethical framework and it's what people do after they've paid their taxes. You know, these are very, very simple messages, but they, they bear repeating. They really bear repeating. And you absolutely do convene a very interesting and diverse range of stakeholders, I have, I think, within the world of philanthropy. Not just philanthropists, but people who are also uh, doing great stuff in this space. And the two people who come to mind are Fran Perrin with 360 Giving and that data standard and encouraging foundations to share their information, uh, which I think is very useful both for foundations and also those who are seeking funds. Um, and uh, Grant Gordon as well, uh, an established philanthropist who knows active with the Beacon Collaborative. He's been a guest on the show before. And so many others from from the private space, from, from charities and the financial community. So I think uh, for folks listening to the show, it's certainly worth uh, taking a look at the Beacon Collaborative without plugging too much. But I just think I've had a pleasant experience dealing with you guys before. Well, you're incredibly kind, Alberto. You know, we we are, are the sum of our network. So, you know, we, we really do care about the relationships that we build. Tell me a little bit about your personal background. So how did you end up where you are today? Um, we met, uh, again, the first time we met was already a, quite a few years back. And back then you were already very involved with the world of philanthropy. Uh, what was that trajectory like? Well, um, I suppose the... My interest in this stems from the wealth management consultancy that um, that I set up 20 some years ago now. Um, and that was back when the wealth management community was just starting to think about how to work effectively with high net worth donors. So what had been private banking was emerging onto a global stage as what became wealth management and, you know, a financial service that's now available to, you know, a very wide um, segment of wealth creators. Um, and we were involved with the wealth management community as it was thinking through how to be effective, you know, in, in working with these individuals. So my whole career has been working with the high net worth community. And I would say after the financial crisis of 2008, you know, that was such a shock in terms of does our economic system work or is it broken? We saw a huge shift in the way that wealth creation and wealth creators were thinking about, you know, growing their assets, how they invested, how they did business. Of course, this has come much more established now in terms of CSR and ESG and, you know, social entrepreneurship and impact investment. But the real spark of it 
came out, I think, from that crisis. And since then, philanthropy has been on a growth trajectory, and it has really been part of the wealth communities activities, wealth creators activities. But I think the service provision has somewhat lagged behind. So when I left Scorpio, um, I was very interested to see whether any of that knowledge and experience was transferable into this community. Excellent, excellent. If anyone listening to this is interested in finding out more, where, where would you point them to? What's um, the best way of getting a hold of you? Finding more out about philanthropy. There are some brilliant resources out there. So we're very happy to signpost. Um, but, um, you know, our partners really do the hard work. So across the UK and the regions, the community foundations are out there. Um, for those who are interested in education, the philanthropy workshop is out there. Um, Big Society Capital is doing fabulous things, um, developing funds in partnership with wealth managers. Um, so, yes, in fact, one of the projects that we're working on with Philanthropy Impact is to build a directory of all of these different resources, which hopefully will be will be available later on this year. Um, because, yeah, it's a for the new donor. It's a complex and confusing space and there aren't enough signs posting them in the right place. So we'd be very happy to talk to anyone and help signpost them. Um, and uh, hopefully we can do that more formally later on. Great, great, great. And hopefully a lot of people listening to this, if they're not already in that philanthropic journey, might be enticed to take a look at it a little bit more closely. Kath, it's been uh, great having you on the show. And before we part ways today, let me ask you for that key takeaway. What's that one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? I would like your audience to just ponder what philanthropy could be like if we saw it as a relationship. Excellent. Kath, thank you so very much uh, for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been wonderful seeing you again, and uh, here's to your continued success. Thank you so much, Alberto. It's been a pleasure. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. You've been listening to a great chat with Kath Dovey, co-founder of the Beacon Collaborative. For information about this episode and more than 150 other interviews with remarkable thought leaders in the field of philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps other people to find this show. Thanks so much for tuning in and I'll catch you next week.